I'm Jean Reith. And I'm Kyle Thompson. And you're listening to General Intellect Unit. And this time we are interviewing uh, two folks who made a really challenging and wonderful game um, called Half-Earth Socialism. Um, we're interviewing Francis Seng and Sean La Pham, who uh, were the developers of this um, this game. Uh, you can go play it um, at uh, play.half.earth. Um, it's a web-based game, so load it up on your phone and... Uh, maybe get it going in the background of this episode. Oh yeah, great idea. <laughs> <laughs> work through um work through those uh, inevitable early failures <laughs> while uh, while we interview them about the design. Um yeah, it's a, it's a hell of a game, right? And it's um the the concept is that um uh, baffling as it might sound in the year 2022 there's a global socialist revolution and you play as the um the lead planner for the next eight years, uh, it's, it's it's sixty years, ten year, yeah. It's like it's twenty eighty two that the, the the end date is, yeah. And you're you're making all these decisions about um, how to tweak tweak production, do research, implement policies uh, to um, get climate change under control, um, and yeah, it's it's real fun. Yeah, and your uh, your planning bureau has the very cute name of uh, Goss Plant. Yeah, that's fantastic. <laughs> the, the the humor and the, um, I always love a good title or a good name for something, and a lot of these um, these like planning cards have wonderful uh, wonderful little names. Um, I do love the one that's just um, it's like a crackdown on cryptocurrency, which saves one percent of electricity, uh, which I think is quite fabulous. Oh. yes, it's just like oh yes, just just the 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 pleasure of being able to just press a button and be like, bye. Yeah. That's the one I do. I do immediately. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. It's, it, it's, um, it's a, it's quite an amusing game. Yeah. There's, there's actually something I completely forgot to ask them about, but hopefully we'll be able to uh, talk to the book offers about, which is um, just the, uh, the, um, what do you call them? The, demographic groups mm, the political uh, the, groups the, the sort of pops the political groups that are in the game and how like how those were selected because they're very interesting right because it's like there aren't any capitalists in the in the the political decision making process right it's like when we we talked about um in uh the revolutionary strategy podcast the mike mcnair podcast i did of tom about how like yeah when you have a revolution like the new revolutionary block may be diverse because the 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 successful party splits uh when it gets into power but it doesn't include necessarily the pre-revolutionary power block <laughs> yeah they're, they're like monarchists they just become irrelevant um so the exactly yes the, the capitalists have been vanquished at the beginning of the um of the game which i think is wonderful and like it's um 
it, even the play of the game really does drive home that all of this shit would only be possible under under socialism, right? Because like so much of the measures you have to take to get emissions and global temperature and like species die off under control are all stuff. They're all things that are just totally fucking incompatible with markets and with like um, the the value form and wage relations and stuff like that. Like this. Um, like they, they really do need to have the the establishing thing at the start where it's like, okay, 2022 global socialist revolution. Now that that slate's fucking cleared, we can get on with this thing. Yeah. 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 Because it's like, you know, you, for example, you look at like capitalist agribusiness, whether you're doing the factory farming or you're doing the um, uh, organic large scale agriculture uh, you know, the sort of two forms that are roughly compatible with capitalism. Uh, either way, you're basically consigning the planet's ecosystem to death. Um, and the the options that would work uh, are ones that are sort of outside the possibility space of capitalism because <laughs> they just they just work in a in a direction opposite that of uh, capital concentration and, uh, you know, cash crop production. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was something, um, yeah, again, I forgot to bring it up in the interview, but um, I was kind of struck by how, I don't know how to phrase this, it's like, you might initially go for some kind of, op- uh, what you might think are fairly obvious kind of maneuvers to try to get things under control, but they, they rarely really work out, and the game does guide you towards these other kinds of things. But what, what's interesting is that, like, the solutions that actually work are fairly nuts and bolts, actually. Like they're they're quite they're quite simple solutions, even if they're not totally intuitive initially. In that, like, yeah, dialing down um, industrial agriculture in favor of more more labor intensive forms of agriculture, which we did discuss in the in the interview. Um, and then you have late, later policies like the kind of what is it like the Renfair utopia sort of thing, where you're kind of permanently reducing um, production in favor of contentedness and like radically reducing pressure on the biosphere. Um, yeah. The sort of like Burian, you, you domineer like, uh, 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 utopia, right? So in, in some cases you, when you're playing, you kind of go from what seems like sim- simple and straightforward solutions that don't actually work to discovering solutions that seem to work that are in themselves actually quite straightforward and like you can then reason about the the like what's behind that and it's like yeah it, it, it's it, i think it's a really great educational artifact for that reason that it kind of uh, guides you towards realizations in that way yeah and it, it's not entirely prescriptive either because like even though i did go for that sort of um more labor intensive approach on my playthrough at the end there of the game i was working on you know uh full automation so um i guess just because we had such an enormous surplus of energy from all of our solar power uh using the highly efficient uh, solar panels um it was like well you know we've got this energy surplus let's plow it into automation uh let's you know make like let's do communism right like uh instead of consigning you know uh, a large portion of the population to 
a life that may be fulfilling, but is nonetheless uh, clearly a part of a division of labor between those who think or work with their hands versus those who work with their heads. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's very cool. And so, like, my, my more successful runs had that kind of theme where it seemed like once we were over the hump, you could start pouring points into, yeah, into that sort of stuff, into the, like, Renfair Utopia. There's a card that's, like, abolish the distinction between town and country. Um, and that, all, that, all that good stuff. Oh, my God. It felt so good. It felt so good to do. It was just, like, uh, it's, like, I don't know. There's just something in my heart that's, like, you know, like, doing these uh, these sort of, like, core uh programmatic points of like the marxian political program and like making them real uh it just i don't know it just feels like ah, uh, like you know finally i'm i'm, I'm doing carl proud like <laughs> these sort of like uh you know social scientific observations about the way things need to go in order to like promote uh like the liberation of of life um, but just have been sitting on the uh, in in the filing cabinet for decades and decades and decades, uh, and and you know finally being able to do those things, it's it's hugely rewarding. Uh, or even um, uh, you know sort of like implementing like a worldwide uh, feminist uh, educational curriculum, right? Like it's like. Yeah, at a time like this, when there's so much backpedaling on fa feminism, uh, it's it's hugely liberating. And even like I just finished um, uh, listening to the audiobook of uh, Ministry for the Future. Um, and even at the end of that scenario, uh, you know, one of the reflections of like one of the main planner characters is like, yeah, we still really haven't addressed the... Uh, the patriarchal domination dimension of, of, of society in any kind of adequate way after doing all of this planning and all of this effort, we're still left with fucking patriarchy. Uh, so just being able to do, you know, something grand about that uh, is uh, really, I don't know. It just makes me feel very good, very relieved, very liberated. It does. Yeah. And it's, especially when it, in the game, it's all, all these things slot together, like the project of decarbonizing the economy and restoring the biosphere and um, like the, the feminist curriculum and all these other things are all hand in glove with each other. Um, yeah, that's something that's like actually supported by social science, right? Is like, you know, it's so obvious the ways in which like... Um, you know, patriarchal or toxic masculinity is like an enormous roadblock to achieving any of these things. And like actually addressing that is not just like a nice to have, but necessary. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because like you go from the feminist curriculum to masculinity detox to abolish cares. Um, those are the, the like, the, that's the tech tree there, you know, that's quite wonderful. Um, yeah, I, I managed to, I managed to finish the game without abolishing cars and without um, without going entirely vegan. I, I, I managed to save cheese, um, so that was uh, 
That was that was near near dear to my heart as well. <laughs> it's like oh, we did we did bad cheese. Oh, thank God, <laughs> we did bad yogurt. Well, I I found that like um, I could get a lot of the pressure on um, livestock down by like banning fishing and that kind of stuff, but I I found I could I could rarely afford the contentedness hit from the vegan mandate. Um, I I mean I couldn't even I, I was like. Well, at least my first playthrough, I'm going to try for vegetarianism because, you know, I, I, I like vegan food, but I also like animal products, even if I've uh, moved more away from uh, eating meat. Um, so it's it's I don't know. It's just a nice part of life. Uh. <laughs> yeah, um, I guess there's still there's still room for it, room for it in the game. Um yeah. Uh, well, I guess with that, so let's uh, let's move on to the interview. For, thanks for joining us. It's a it's a real pleasure. Um, I've really struggled with this game, but um, but hey, we can we can talk about that a bit later. Uh, for the meantime, um, uh, maybe introduce yourselves to the audience. Sure, I can go first. Um, my name is Shenla Pham. I'm a graphic designer and technologist focusing mainly on emergent forms for the web. Um, I'm based in Berlin, Germany, and uh, you can use the pronouns he and him to to refer to me if you want. Um, and I'm really glad to be here. And uh, my name is Francis Seng. Uh, I am a researcher at the Jane Family Institute based in New York, uh, where I uh, do a lot of um, software development of models and simulations and that sort of thing. Um, and for my pronouns here, they are both fine. Yeah, wonderful. So um, I guess I'm curious about like the, the origin of this project. Like, How did it all get started? Yeah, I can speak a little bit to that. So um, early last year... Uh, an art director from Verso reached out to Trust um, about working on a website for a new title coming out on Verso called Hafer Socialism. Um, of course, the book that's now been published with uh, by uh, Troy Andrew, um, Troy Viteza and Drew Pendergrass. So basically they had in the book actually from quite an early stage conceptualized this idea of a website that allows you to play with the mixture of um, land use and resource use and kind of move a few sliders around and essentially hit like a calculate button and there would be a simple linear programming uh, algorithm that would spit out kind of a, uh, a result saying whether or not um, that particular mix is compatible with Harvard socialism and uh, keeping the earth as a habitable place on the whole. And so at Trust, um, at Trust in Berlin, we actually thought about this a little bit and we reached out to Francis um, and we counter-proposed to Troy and Drew to make a game where you could actually see these things happen over time and you could, um, yeah, have various inputs, see them affect a certain kind of simulation, and then you could kind of adjust as the simulation runs. So a little bit more of a 
complicated, um, but maybe more rewarding type of uh, experience than a simple calculator. So um, that's how the project came about. And yeah, we, we kind of uh, did a lot of pre-production work before we even started building anything um, with conversations with yeah myself, Francis, Arthur, uh, Arthur Roenbeer from Trust um, and the authors and also Chiara Di Leone, who uh, helped us um, convene a reading group as part of the uh, pre-process of getting ready to, to build a game that is kind of addressing many of these more complicated ideas um, relating to yeah, ecology, um, climate modeling, um, cybernetics and so on. Um, and Francis, maybe you can speak a little bit more to this. Yeah, so part of the, um, the book, a big part of it basically is about cybernetic planning and uh, the kind of original linear programming calculator is um, part of Troy and Drew's proposal, basically, that there is some kind of model that everyone has access to so that they can actually cogently participate in this democratic planning process, um, which, yeah, which is a key part of their kind of vision of half with socialism. So that's kind of what the calculator is usually for. And then, yeah, we had proposed a game maybe being as uh, as like serving a similar function, but providing a richer experience, like having some narrative on top. So it's more engaging. Um, and that, that's kind of the main departure point of the game. Right. So, um, uh, maybe, uh, just, I guess we're putting the, the cart before the horse a bit here, but, uh, could you just, uh, describe, uh, briefly what the finished product looks like, uh, for our listeners? Sure. Yeah. Um, so basically, the game is structured around these cards um, uh, that you can play. So the main loop of the game is that every, roughly every five years, there is a planning session and then you take on the role as kind of the lead planner for the world. Um, and you have a number of cards to work with and each of these cards represents a different policy or infrastructure project or research project. So things like um, mass electrification uh, to, let's see, what's kind of the more exotic things? Um, like, nuclear fusion, uh, yeah, space bios, elevators. Yeah, nuclear fusion. <laughs> yeah, you can uh, mine fossil fuel. I guess they're not fossil fuels, but you can mine for hydrocarbons on, uh, what is it, uh, Titan? Um, so we have like a, a pretty wide range of these projects. And so then you decide, you have a certain amount of political capital that you can spend, um, and you spend that on uh, deciding which projects get implemented and uh, that's that's pretty much the main loop of the game. And then you just try and make the world a better place, uh, more or less. Yeah. And like you're kind of counterbalancing these because it, it, it's it's a very dynamic kind of simulation and things things go sideways in all kinds of crazy ways. Right. Like you, you run out of political capital or uh, like happiness uh, drops to zero or, you know, emissions and temperature skyrocket or there's plagues or there's fires and all kinds of stuff um so it's um it's a really uh it's a, you know edge of your seats for the game um, and has that lovely uh just one more turn kind of kind of loop built into it where i i kept losing i kept absolutely getting getting slaughtered and like uh initially initially i couldn't get past the first two rounds basically without everyone uh, uh storming into the the planning building and uh, putting an end to us but i, I just kept i kept like, every time i failed i had to refresh and uh and have another go. Uh, it's really, really good design, you know, addictive stuff. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, that that's maybe uh, uh, quite a realistic uh, situation because uh, 
I noticed that the the authors of the book uh, mentioned uh, Neurath as an inspiration for the book and uh, what actually happened to his planning efforts in uh, Bavaria is pretty much two turns and then, you know, the building gets stormed and <laughs> you get kicked out, <laughs> thrown so, in jail. <laughs> so is it is it like deliberately like XCOM where it's impossible to win for the first 10 or 15 attempts? Not, not, um, well, it isn't impossible at the first 10 or 15 attempts, depending on how you approach it. But, um, the first, the first two planning cycles are definitely some of the most difficult, um, where if you can't stabilize at the beginning, then it, it will be very, very difficult for you to, uh, um, succeed later on in the game. Although XCOM was one of the influences on some of the earlier prototypes we had and some of the earlier ideas we had for the game, actually, um, yeah, we kind of, yeah, in the earliest in the earliest stage of the design, we were kind of imagining being able to visit different parts of the planet and kind of dispatch, like, uh, yeah, like uh, heat uh, heat crews that could cool people down in their heat waves and so on. Um, we ended up not kind of going in this direction because, um, with the limited resources we had to produce the game, it was definitely more important to capture the global scale of um, Harvard socialism and the the effects of climate change rather than kind of go into this regional view, but it was definitely something that we, yeah, that we, um, I think both of us had played XCOM and we kind of really enjoyed the, the overworld view, you know, that you get when you try and, um, manage the existential threat, uh, and it has that sense of there being quite a bit of stuff happening behind the scenes. That's not evident to you as a planner, like in, in XCOM, it's the whole like, whoop, 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 whoop. there's, there's aliens somewhere sort of thing. And in, in playing this game, I got a strong sense that there's a lot of hidden variables that are being tracked that I had no access to and, like, well, I had no direct access to, but I, when I kept getting these, like, locust plagues or whatever, I could intuit that there was something going wrong with the way I was doing the planning and I had to switch tracks earlier in the, ne- in the next run to, um, to address that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, it's interesting because there are a number of other variables that aren't really surfaced and... It can be a frustrating experience in a game when you're when you don't have like a, enough visibility into the system, and that was one of the many kind of design challenges is just figuring out like, well, how much do you show to the player? Like, how much of the complexity can we actually like communicate in in, in a way that isn't overwhelming and that's actually actionable? Um, how much of it has to be hidden? Uh, yeah, yeah. I think in even our very earliest discussions, we talked about the kind of the guard game. Uh, kind of the problematic way that things like SimCity or, or other other similar kind of planning and simulation games operate with an assumption that the player is kind of this God's eye view character with kind of an omnipotent, um, yeah, way to, to affect the world. And we definitely wanted to kind of challenge that um, and embody the player's perspective in the world um, in this instance, being the lead planner for God's Plant uh, and using the game as the planning interface. Um, so a certain amount of opacity um, is it's like it's kind of part of the game design as well, is that uh, you can't actually know all of the stuff in the beginning about how, um, say, regreening the desert is going to affect global temperature, where you might expect it to reduce temperature and for uh, an entire new green area to kind of sequester carbon and so on. But actually, um, because deserts are actually quite good at reflecting sunlight, um, 
the temperature may actually go up. Um, so definitely part of, yeah, part of the opacity is to do with the complexity of the simulation and part of it is also a conscious uh, decision to um, put players in a position where they're not kind of a, a universal God's eye view uh, player. Yeah, that's a really interesting choice because, um, well, first of all, having just uh, spent some time uh, on the uh, Alpha to Omega, our our sister podcast, uh, ranting about um, my frustrations with ideas of perfect information, I I really appreciate that, like, you do include that sort of obscurity of the future in your uh, model. Uh, but second of all, I think it's um, leads to an interesting gameplay dynamic where I kind of felt myself like after having done my first playthrough, I I kind of didn't want to play it over again because I I didn't want to play it with foreknowledge. Like I would only play it again if I was going to take paths that I hadn't taken the first time because uh, I really like that. Uh, you know, sort of groping your way through the planning process uh, dimension of the game. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, a lot of people. Yeah, I was just going to say about, um, yeah, replayability and trying different strategies. It was was kind of interesting too, like during the whole play testing process, like there are so many different paths you can take in the game and um, we wanted to be thorough before we released the game and, and like try a lot of them just to make sure, you know, they worked as intended and so on. But um, it was interesting because a lot of people only wanted to play like one particular style. And so it ended up being very hard to see like how the, the more like off kilter strategies played out. So I think people uh, now have kind of discovered maybe weirder ways to win and stuff like that. Yeah, that's that's interesting because um, like I I found initially that um, I, know, I, was, I was probably just drawn to a certain set of cards and certain strategies and then kind of notice that that like though these aren't working out so I had to like then back out and reevaluate and I would wager that that happens for everyone it's just kind of like tickles whatever their particular biases are and that the the game is doing this kind of educational thing of like teaching you that like picking you know starting with the first move with Stocknovide shock workers uh, accelerationism <laughs> and the consumerist uh, cur- curriculum will probably not work out Right, like it's um, it's really it's a, the game is steering you toward a realization. <laughs> so, like for example, um, a lot of people would probably be drawn immediately towards like electrification and and like biofuels or whatever, and maybe not realize that one of the keys to success is probably to actually reduce demand for electricity in the first place, and to you know that that sort of thing, right? But that the, the game teaches you that through failure, and then you you kind of learn to adjust your strategies. Yeah, I guess initially in in our design process, we were we were imagining the the play sessions being a lot shorter, um, so that trial and error is really important, um, which I think it still is in the final game. But of course, um, the runs end up being a little bit longer. Like some people, you know, um, will open up the game and just spend half an hour reading all of the card descriptions because there's there's so many of them. Um, so I think the way that people open into the game and try things um, from what I've, from what I've seen, I think is really affected depending on whether they're familiar with some of these ideas or not. Um, and I think a lot of the things in the game that sound good, and I guess like this reflects some of the real world technologies as well, things that sound good on paper, but actually have a lot of, uh, yeah, difficulties in, in implementation, whether it's like vertical farming, which 
has just a really insane uh, energy use per um, per unit of plant calories it provides, which is based um, based on real world figures um, at the moment. Um, many of these things, it ends up being perhaps counterintuitive if if you're not familiar with the details, but I think in a, in a really interesting way, it kind of adds more shading and depth to these technologies that many of them have a, a real use, but it's not like we can just pivot our entire food economy into vertical farms, you know, overnight. It just wouldn't, this, this is just not realistic. Um, so I think in my playing of the game, I think the things that I enjoy a lot are being able to have quite a balanced mixture, especially when it comes to fuel, um, because uh, fuel and energy sources, because it is so difficult, um, like in the real world, to actually divest out of fossil fuels because of the, the sheer amount of energy density that they provide. Um, that renewables don't match. Um, but I think you mentioned it just before is that actually reducing demand is a really big part of this. Um, and when you play the game, you realize that, um, that yeah, the best way to make your output more effective is actually to reduce the demand in the first place. Um, yeah, I mean, that's those are actually some of the examples that I kept coming back to when I was thinking, like, thinking about this, getting ready for the interview, that, like, I really struggled with fuels, and I think because in a couple of runs, I would kind of just dial coal, petroleum, everything way down to zero and then put it all into, you know, blue hydrogen or whatever. And then I would do things like research the, what is it, like the algae-based biofuels, and then be kind of surprised by the result. It was like, hold on, how is this worse than petroleum, you know, in in a lot of the, the stats that matter? And I guess that's part of the learning loop is that, like, you're kind of teaching people, no, actually, a lot of these things are pretty grim you know when they're actually implemented like um which is uh which i found really uh, there was a lot of really counterintuitive stuff i found in the game that, um that i kind of i don't know when you're presented on the research screen with like oh research algae biofuels or whatever it seems seems like a sure bet it's like oh yeah sure that sounds great like that'll that'll save the planet and then you, you actually get it in your hand and you're like ah, oh, i don't know this this is actually kind of worse than petroleum in some ways or whatever yeah it's kind of interesting where the game has to depart uh, depart from like typical video game logic, like kind of maybe like what you're saying in a in a typical video game. Like every upgrade, every research thing is is usually like strictly better than what you had before. Um, but part of what we wanted the game to communicate is just like the tremendous amount of uncertainty in in a lot of these decisions. Um, so it's a bit of a risk to like you know invest all your research points into something that may not actually pay off. Um, yeah, like um I feel like uh this idea that every option is uh an improvement um is much more of a sort of like uh consumerist logic than it is a planning logic. Um and it's really interesting the way the game is sort of getting at those th- those fundamental facts of of planning. Uh yeah, mm-hmm. I'm kind of curious because, um, like, there's there's a lot of um, there's a lot of emergent detail in the, the play of the game, and there's kind of like narrative stuff. I guess you can kind of um, put in your head as a player. And I'm I'm sort of thinking of stuff like in a lot of my runs, I found that um, hydropower its effectiveness dropped to zero, and I could kind of then imagine that that might have been because there's just the, the, the water cycle is so disrupted that you can't rely on, you know, water flowing in that way or whatever. 
But I'm, I'm kind of curious as to how much of this kind of stuff was deliberately designed versus it being an emergent property of the size of the simulation. Like these, these the kind of extreme difficulties and the dynamism of the game, like how, how much of it is, is deliberately designed versus being being just just a kind of fact that falls out of the size of the problem. Yeah, for I think we wanted to make it so that um, you know as much as possible wasn't deliberately designed. I mean, that's still quite a lot of it is deliberately designed, but I think we knew um, you know the book has a very kind of specific point of view and argument that it's trying to make. And we didn't want the game to be read as like uh, kind of unfairly um, valorizing the ideas in the book. And, and we want it to feel a bit more uh, fair in its treatment of these other technologies. So wherever we could, we tried to, you know, use values like uh, parameters for like, you know, the amount of carbon emitted by algae biofuels or something like that. Um, tried to use like third party research where we could. Um, for a lot of these novel technologies, of course, there aren't really many numbers and the numbers that do exist, there's a lot of uncertainty and controversy around them. Um, but uh, but we try to make like a relatively simple model of how all these things interconnect and then just plug in, you know, numbers that we sourced from more reliable places and, uh, and then just kind of see what happens. Mm. So a fair amount is kind of emergent, I guess, in a way. Mm. Yeah, I guess like within the scope of the simulation, we tried to we tried to be fair, but we also wanted to model the risks associated with um, many of these technologies that maybe gets glossed over when we start entering heated debates about energy transition and so on. Um, for instance, nuclear has a lot of risks modeled in as part of the simulation, um, which of course it does give the game a point of view, um, which is not a bad thing, but we didn't want it to be something that is overtly didactic in a way that a lot of these types of games often end up being um, because it's not fun and people are smarter than that. They know when um, they know when things, uh, when the rhetoric is, is, is too much that it, it makes the argument less compelling, you know? So um, yeah, yeah, there's a really good talk I was, I was, I was uh, listening to about how, um, the extent that, at which you model the simulation kind of really represents the, the worldview of, of what you're building. And I think um, we're kind of not ashamed to, to uh, admit that. Um, but it definitely, it definitely means that um, the way, the approach that we had to how things are balanced is very, yeah, very different to how maybe you might design a more conventional game where things need to be kind of explicitly balanced in a certain way. Um, or... Counter, uh, counter to that, if, a, if it's a very didactic experience, you know, things have to be, the bad things have to be very bad and the good things have to be very good. And you kind of, um, you're kind of like, yeah, dragging players in a certain way to make them, um, make their views align with, with your own. So yeah, to some extent, we, we are modeling in an opinion into the, into the simulation, but um, yeah, that's something that we're, we're definitely okay with. And it's part of the challenge of, of uh, adapting and kind of basing a game over, off uh, a book which is a very strongly opinionated, um, yeah, utopian handbook of sorts to uh, to save the world from climate change and pandemics. Um, so yeah, that was definitely part of our, part of the challenge in building the game. Yeah, just to sort of give the players, or sorry, not the players, the listeners. <laughs> they are the players. They, they're the players of the show. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, yeah, just to give an example of this sort of like uh, less didactic um, 
way the game works. Like by the time I finished my playthrough, um, uh, I still hadn't eliminated uh, uh, fossil fuels from the energy mix that I was using. Like it was, they were still in there. They were certainly a minority of the the fuel that we were using, but it was, it was a smaller amount. And uh, uh, the game kind of noted that in the, in the conclusion or the, the sort of concluding like ending scenes. Uh, but it, it didn't like, you know, wag its finger at me about uh, having failed to completely eliminate the great Satan uh, oil. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. So Kyle, did you, did you end up actually winning? Cause I, I think I managed to finish, but not necessarily win a couple of times. Yes, I did. Uh, I did succeed. I, I successfully uh, saved the world on my first try, um, which. What? Think, <laughs> wow. Yeah. Jesus uh, Christ. <laughs> which I had two things that I think worked in my favor there. The first one was that uh, I was very aggressive in the first planning period, not really knowing how the. Um, what is it? The political capital uh, system works. Uh, so this political capital is essentially the points you can spend to do initiatives. Um, and I kind of like broke the bank on my first turn. I was like, oh, no, I, I'm going to lose. Right. But, you know, sometimes it's good when you're playing with a model to just like push to the extreme and see what happens. Um, and uh, I was saved by the hero of socialism. Uh so this is a, a revolutionary hero uh, who sort of was uh, part of the of the of the of the revolution prior to uh, the planning period starting, uh, who kind of, you know, showed up in front of the World Congress and uh, staked their reputation uh, to save my administration. Uh, and what that meant is that I, I did this really huge investment in the first round but then I managed to squeeze out, like just squeak out with enough political capital that I could survive until my project started to come to fruition. And then I would get political capital back for having them finished. Um, so the hero of socialism saved me. It's not like told to the player that like this is a this is you get this get out of jail free card. Uh, that, you know, kind of helps you, uh, helps a newbie uh, get things off the ground. But it, it did save me. Uh, and then the second thing is that uh, I am actually working at the uh, Copernicus Institute for Sustainable Development at Utrecht University. Uh, and so uh, I think I probably, you know, given that I went and basically did a PhD in socialist planning and now I'm doing a PhD in social uh, in sustainable development and game design, I uh, probably like one of the best situated people to to have the expertise to succeed at this game. Um and I think I I had just read uh the the findings of the of the IPCC3 report before playing. Uh, so that gave me a lot of like, you know, sort of uh, point form science that I could bring to my strategy. Yeah, probably one of our most credentialed wow. players. Then, um, <laughs> yeah. you definitely, definitely. Yeah, I would be. I'd be very worried if you didn't. If you didn't win, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that does seem like validation, right? That the um, 
the the model works right like there's like there's a congruence um, there that um yeah that works now me but on the other hand i'm a fucking idiot so i just shit the bed continuously for 10 or 15 rounds um and had no idea what to do <laughs> i eventually did half figure it out though like the the game is quite good at steering your understanding towards um strategies that are more likely to work at least um i, I did find it to be pretty pretty difficult though um but yeah real good uh yeah, I was I was kind of wondering like um you were mentioning that you based the kind of like uh balance of the game on um third party science. And I was just wondering like, you know, what kind of as game designers and uh, simulation builders, like what kind of expertise or institutional support did you have that allowed you to really access that science in a way that you could put it into your game design so that like, you know, the game could be didactic, but not in a uh, beat you over the head kind of way. Yeah, um, we had a really great research team that included the authors. So we had Lucy Chinen and Spencer Roberts, who were both very accomplished um, people in their own right help us out um, in terms of researching all of these policies and futures and technologies uh, and actually getting as accurate information about um, their, what their implementation would look like and how it would, impl- would affect the, the model. And Francis, maybe you can also explain it a little bit. Yeah, well, yeah. So we had a great team of researchers and then... Um... Drew, one of the authors of the book, he's an uh, atmospheric chemist, I believe. Um, So he also just has like a tremendous wealth of knowledge um, and helped, you know, check the numbers and make sure we're looking at the right places and what seemed plausible and what didn't. But uh, yeah, a lot of it was just looking for uh, different like national estimates on, you know, how much... uh, uh, let's see, like how much petroleum electricity is produced and what the estimated emissions of that are and so on, and just deriving figures from that. Uh, some of the more interesting things, uh, like as I mentioned before, was looking at these more novel technologies. So vertical farming was very hard to find numbers on. Um, I think I only maybe found two kind of random startups, like vertical farm startups that had published some numbers, and those varied pretty wildly as well. Yeah, I was going to uh, so say, in those like, cases, we, yeah, yeah. I, um, you know, I sort of talked up my credentials, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, I am, I am not one of the quant people in the, the Institute. And I don't, I don't know these numbers off the top of my head. And uh, actually, the vertical farming was one of the, or even the, the farming, the farming model in general was actually probably one of the most interesting parts of the game to me because, um, what the model suggests is like first that vertical farming is maybe more of a kind of uh i don't know aesthetic it has more aesthetic value than it has practical value uh as sort of like yeah this kind of like fun uh uh techno uh utopian uh project um but also that like moving to organic farming is quite disastrous as a policy decision. Um, 
and that uh, actually we really need to shift to a lot of uh, smallholder farming. Uh, so sort of um, peasant peasant scale farming uh, in order to make um, things make our make our agricultural system viable and sort of shift to a more labor intensive um, energy mix uh, or I, I guess uh, effort mix. Um, yeah. So can you, do you speak a little bit to the agricultural points there? Because, you know, my father was a, uh, agriculture scientist and I didn't know any of this. <laughs> yeah. That was probably also one of the most interesting parts to me. And I think, again, this is like one of the big challenges of the game is that like, um, these numbers are so controversial, like organic, you know, yield per uh, acre for organic agriculture versus industrial agriculture. Like you see a lot a lot of papers with numbers in favor of organic and numbers in favor of industrial. And um, it's so context specific that it's really hard to make a general claim about one or the other. And that was really hard to represent in the game as we designed it, because if you're looking at the global scale, um, it's you lose a lot of that detail, which becomes really important. So like vertical farming, like, yeah, it probably, you're probably not going to feed, you know, a substantial amount of the population on it, but perhaps there's some context in which it makes sense. Like some regions where it's maybe the only way to produce, uh, uh food throughout all the seasons. Um, maybe it's not yeah. the most cost effective at a global scale, but perhaps, yeah, there are some places where it does make sense. So yeah, unfortunately we couldn't like really you know, explore, explore those nuances. Um, and so, yeah, agriculture, I think is probably going to be one of the more controversial places, uh, within the game in terms of our numbers and stuff like that. And just to sort of, Oh, uh, yeah, sorry. Uh, just to sort of satisfy my curiosity, when you say organic farming in the game, are you sort of talking about like semi-industrial large-scale organic farming like the kind like where you would go to the supermarket and buy your quote-unquote certified organic produce that comes in a plastic bag from a large uh like um uh food uh corporation yeah i think that is basically what we had in mind we had a, a third or i guess fourth one originally too uh for regenerative agriculture um i think we eventually just kind of ditch that because the numbers we had was they were sort of indistinguishable from organic or maybe like slightly worse in all respects um, and we ended up breaking out some of those like the practices that are associated with regenerative agriculture like biochar into separate projects um, so I think like really the only kind of uh, alternative to these more industrial scale forms of agriculture was the smallholder one I think that was it yeah and I, I guess the idea there is that you're putting in more human effort as opposed to like a sort of large scale chemistry mechanization, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's more labor intensive, but it can uh, conform better to, yeah, like a local ecological context and, um, you know, more uh, like the kind of um, what's the term I'm looking for the like abstraction that like mechanization provides that ends up, you know, damaging more, uh, of the fruits or something like that um, goes away a bit when you have people on the ground more meticulously handling things. Right. So you have like, you know, less less waste or something like that. Yeah. The farmers are actually like, uh, you know, intelligent sensors of their local ecosystem uh, as opposed to just being like, okay, one size fits all, like just 
pave it pave it over with plantations. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I, I noticed. Um, I kind of noticed similar things, like with. Um, so I, I guess this stuff has to be. Um, and again, this, this is my sort of curiosity about like how deliberate it is versus it just being a fact of the model. Because like, I can imagine a lot of players just going to open the um, the agriculture, like the plant and animal food um, based food agri- agriculture panels, and just go, "Oh yeah, sure, just just dial dial industrial down to zero, and then dial the fucking organic one up to a hundred. It's you know easy easy solution, you know." Um, I guess that it kind of it, it then becomes very rapidly evident that that's not going to work. Um, and so, yeah, again, it, that in, I was always wondering, like, uh, to what to, it, it, it seems like that was, um, that was just, a, that was like a fact of the model and it, it's a fact of the model that seems to actually reflect reality. So it all, it all kind of made sense in my head. Um, but I also did get a kind of a small sense of like this, um, the, the, the solutions can't be that easy, basically. Um, and I, I don't know, maybe, maybe that's, is that a thing that's designed into it where there's kind of obvious, um, there are some changes that might seem really obvious to players that don't really work out. Um, and like, or did you find that you needed to design that in or did, or did it just fall out of the model that this is, yeah, this is, this is just the way things are. I think um, we tried not to have too many kind of gotcha scenarios where a player will try and take a, a route and it'll be like, oops, actually is really bad. Um, but there are some things that are just self-evident in the way the model works such as if you don't manage to reduce industrial livestock and industrial crops, then the chances of the global dust bowl event happening become a lot higher, which then actually reduces the output that you that you get from industrial agriculture in general. Um, so we have these kind of yeah, these some they're kind of emergent, but they're also based on yeah, based on research about how how these processes are actually very damaging for the environment in a whole lot of ways with a whole lot of flow and effects that we've tried to model in um, through these kind of, through uh, events and through um, the supply and demand of, of, uh, of energy and calories and um, water and so on. Yeah, that, that makes sense because it, it did always feel intuitively like it was going to be like, um, like it was like that, that it was... It, it it felt it always felt very difficult, but it felt realistic, you know. Um, so I guess that's a big success in the design that uh, that does come across. Yeah, and just also to jump back to what we were talking about with agriculture, that reminds me too that like uh, if I recall, the global dust bowl event is um, much more likely if you have a substantial amount of industrial agriculture, and less likely if you have organic. If, if, I, if I'm remembering correctly. So it's also that like a lot of the times, you know, when you're in that process window comparing industrial to organic, you're just looking at like the per plant calorie uh, impacts, but um, there may be kind of like off-screen effects that uh, you'd also need to consider. So it's less straightforward than just comparing those numbers. Yeah. That's very cool. Um, yeah. So I, I think uh, one game that certainly comes to mind uh, when playing uh, this Heifer Socialism game uh, is, uh, at least for the old heads like myself, is uh, Fate of the World, uh, which was a very old, uh, or I guess quite old, um, uh, similar kind of uh, global planning game that was based on playing cards and interacting with a with a simulation um, that was put out uh 
kind of like with the collaboration of the UN and got some commercial uh, releases. Um, how much was uh, Fate of the World uh, an influence on your design? Um, I was wondering. Um, I, I don't know if we ever discussed it as a group, but I looked at it very briefly. And my main takeaway was that it was like too detailed because I remember there's like a lot of essentially spreadsheets that you're looking at. Uh, it's really impressive the amount of detail in their model, but I think it was just too much for the average player, I guess, to like take in all at once. Yeah, I think I remember seeing it in our like group chat, um, but it was already after we had decided on using cards and kind of the the general idea of the game as well. So it was kind of funny to see this thing that looked quite in a weird way like similar in some mechanics to what we were doing yeah. um and usually when i see stuff like that i avoid it because i don't want to i don't want to like oh. um subliminally trick myself into um <laughs> being influenced by it uh i know that instinct as a game designer i really do <laughs> it's a really strange thing um but yeah i guess like my impression also of it is like you would do a workshop at like a ngo like um meeting to like learn how to play this game and then you would do it as the kind of one of these uh yeah maybe like non-profit like edgy role play kind of game experiences um yeah it seems like definitely the type of edgy game that we maybe didn't want to go down that path um although there's another really interesting game from from i think in the 90s which was balance of the planet and Francis, you found this one actually. It's a really, uh, really interesting, like DOS era game um, about, yeah. yeah, moving sliders around. And maybe you can explain a little bit better. Yeah, I think was it by Chris Crawford? Is that right? Um, yeah, from the I think nineteen ninety or yeah around then. Um, and actually, if you yeah if you look it up, it has like these nice kind of like Apple II era like uh, one bit graphics. Um, oh, nice. And, uh, yeah, it's really fun. But it is like much more of a like a literal calculator in a lot of ways where, yeah, like you're kind of playing with sliders. And it's actually kind of like the when um, the original idea of the Hafford Socialism game, uh, I imagine might have looked something like that. But it has like nice illustrations. It's, it's actually a really neat game. So I'm curious then, like, were there any other um, like how many how many like uh interaction models or how many like overall designs did you entertain before settling on the cards i think we settled on the cards pretty early on is that right yeah yeah i think we in our initial kind of pitch or in our initial vision for it was that you would have the simulation layer running beneath and then you would have some kind of card based narrative layer on top where you would make decisions um and initially Initially, it was going to be yeah a little bit more simple in the terms of interactions you could make, where you would just kind of be saying yes, no, or maybe like yes, no, maybe, or have a maybe two or three options to these events that would just continually appear in front of you. Um, some more similar to something like Reigns, um, which is a which is a really fantastic mobile game. Um, but we ended up steering away from that, but we kept the cards as a way to. Um, yeah, summarize um, a lot of these complex ideas in a very compact um, form. And when you're working with a mobile screen first, which is always kind of part of our, was part of our vision, um, is that cards happen to be a very convenient size uh, for mobile screens. And 
kind of enabled enabled the game to work at small small screen sizes, which I think actually last time we checked the, the just over half of the people playing the game are on are on small screens, so kind of paid off, I think. Yeah, and I, I guess uh, it also works with the aspect ratio of a phone, right? The card and the and the phone are both sort of card shaped in a way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's it's super interesting to me to hear about this 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 kind of convergent evolution uh, in design because um, I think that when we look at design history, there's a we have an enormous tendency towards primate primacy bias. Uh, like the first instance we encounter of it, we assume that there's some kind of subterranean influence that comes down the line and affects everything afterwards. Uh, but I've seen this with a few games, at least, where the designers are like, no, we like literally did not play that other game. But we arrived at the same sort of design paradigm because of just convergent evolution. And uh, yeah, that's a super interesting thing about uh, design history, at least to, to me. Um, yeah, even even though we had settled on the idea of cards kind of being the main uh, object or unit that um, players would be manipulating, we had like a bunch of different ideas within that too. Um, two that I liked that we ended up not pursuing was um, one would be kind of like if you've played uh, any of the Diablo games, you know, you have like your character sheet or whatever, character inventory, and there's like a slot for your helmet and a slot for your... I don't know, your greaves or gauntlets or whatever. And so that would kind of be like your plan would have these specific slots for like an energy policy or a transport policy. And you'd kind of like equip your plan or equip the world with these different cards. Um, and this actually, I think later on, Shunla showed me the um, uh, Civ Six Civilization Six policy interface. And it's actually pretty similar to that where you like, yes. you have a slot for economic policy and you drop something in there. Um, and then the second idea that I liked uh, was also like this more deck building approach because something about like the way I was thinking about planning originally was that it kind of you're equipping yourself with ways to respond to events in the future, which is sort of like how you build like a deck if you play Magic the Gathering or, or something like that. Like you anticipate certain scenarios and you try to design your deck so that you can respond to those if, if they happen. Um, so we were thinking like, you know, okay. You're thinking out, out 10, 20 years and you're thinking like, okay, there'll be a higher prevalence of wildfires. So you need to, um, you know, uh, build your deck with some kind of like rapid response fire fighting policy or something like that. And then if that does happen, you'd be able to respond. Um, but we ended up not going that route. I think it was too complicated. And um, yeah, I guess in a sense, like the, the, the advantage that you have um, that would allow you to sort of avoid going down the route of a deck builder is that a deck builder is the player's set of options, but it's also it, it also tracks the um, the deck tracks the game state, uh, but uh, your model is tracking the game state in a way higher resolution way than uh, than uh, a deck would, and uh, to I guess double up on that would create a lot of confusion. Yeah, yeah exactly. that's a good point. You can kind of see vestigial, uh, well, I mean, I guess you can see vestigial traces of that in the little narrative popovers that you'd sometimes get, where um, one of the little characters will pop in and say, ah, we really got to do something about, you know, an event or something. Um, and you can kind of click and dismiss them. But um, I can imagine a version of the game that has more, like, um, 
the world events and those character events are kind of a prompt for a response that you play out of the uh, the cards you've got or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I think in a, some of the earlier prototypes that Francis was working on was definitely like you would have a deck of cards and you'd play them in response to wildfires or, or uh, droughts or so on. Um, and I think, yeah, we kind of moved away from that. I think largely just because of the the scope of the game needed to already be really huge and talk about things at a planetary scale and that it was more than sufficient enough to kind of put in a project that says drought-resistant crops. And if you research this, you get like, you know, a 20% reduced chance of crop failures. Um, and then you never have to, you know, actively play it after you've researched it, you know. Um, and I think yeah. it allowed us it allowed us to kind of shorthand a lot of these things so that we could let the scope of the game be a bit bigger. Um, but of course we could, you know, we could kind of talk forever about like different ways the game could have gone just because of the, the subject matter, you know. Um, and we, we went through a lot of kind of paper iterations, not even getting into, into prototyping anything with code about how you can model, yeah, how you can model the planet, which is like obviously a very, very big um, possibility space. And obviously what we ended up with is obviously not, not a full model. It's not a, it's, it's, it's incomplete in, in many ways, of course, but I think captures the, the key points um, that we wanted to communicate about, yeah, about land use, about, um, about limits and about uh, the, the necessity to reduce demand um, for, for many things really. Yeah, um, I was sort of wanted to sort of move away from uh, this uh, quantitative or I guess modeling discussion a, a little bit towards um, the more kind of like effective or emotional dimension of the game. Um, we sort of, you know, we talked earlier about uh, how we all kind of come into um, the game with our own sort of notions of what will or will not be effective or our own personal hobby horses like, you know, vertical farming maybe. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, what kind of emotional reactions to the game did you see in playtesting and how did that influence your uh, design process? Because I think that, you know, given that the game is to some extent a simulation that may uh, lead people to think that it, it it's it's less interested in the emotional side of things, but I, it, it didn't seem to me that that was the case. Yeah, um, I I think the utopian fiction element of the book is really not this doom and gloom kind of scenario. Um, it's really a positive and kind of bright vision of how the world could look like um, with nice details about the social lives of the people who live in that world and um, how climate is as much a uh, planetary meteorological and biodiversity challenges is like a, a, a basis for how we, how we live in the world. Um, so I guess in the game, we really wanted to not go too dark. I think um, humor and levity and, interesting things from history that kind of poke the head out at from time to time in a really curious way. Um, these all make the game kind of a richer world to kind of, um, engage with. Um, but of course, like, 
there's really no avoiding like some of the more uh, kind of troubling and, and scary parts of climate change. There's, there's really no way to avoid them without being disingenuous. So um, in, feed, in the feedback, we got some quite good um, responses about enjoying uh, the characters and their kind of, uh, kind of silly, like 2D, but kind of funny way that they, they behave and they talk. Um, and also the impact of like when a species goes extinct and the characters really grieve for, um, for the loss of these, of these uh, cohabitors of our planet. Um, we did find like, yeah, that people, people were, were engaging with that, um, which is really credit to all of the people who were writing, writing the dialogue um, and the events and making these, these things compelling, um, which I feel like maybe in like a, in like quite a bright, uh, quite a bright, visually quite bright uh, game interface that these events kind of hit with a little bit more impact just because of that contrast. Um, so yeah, maybe Francis, you could also add something here. Yeah. Um, I mean, like you're saying, yeah, I think a lot of the tone of the game really drew from this speculative fiction chapter at the end of the book um, that I think was added like maybe relatively late in the book's development. Um, but just kind of using the game as an opportunity to show that, you know, not only are, uh, not only are these, um, these sort of means of addressing climate change and, uh, you know, extinct, the extinction crisis and so on, uh, are they necessary just for kind of meaning a reasonable level of planetary habitability, but also these changes present an opportunity to um, change our lives for the better in many other ways too. So we wanted to really kind of make it not that you're only addressing a crisis, but you're also actively building a better world. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. For myself, uh, it was, it, it was a very emotional, uh, uh, process to play the game, which surprised me because, um, I think in, uh, a lot of the, I guess a lot of the discord, the current discourse in the kind of like serious games, quote unquote, like, you know, um, educational games, science education games, uh, discourse that's going on right now. Uh, there's a kind of view that these, um, I wouldn't say God games cause it's not quite a God game, but it, it is close to being one, right? It's a, it's one of those, you're in a situation of enormous authority and you make uh, decisions about an abstract system. Um, these, these kinds of games are often criticized because they're, they're quite emotionally detached and they don't really situate you. And, uh, people feel like, you know, they're just, oh, they're just sort of like toy models that people are playing with. And, and, you know, we need games that are more, you know, sort of ground level and, and, and connect with people emotionally in ways that are tangible. Um, but that wasn't really my play experience of half Earth socialism at all. Actually, I, I, I found it, you know, the, like you said, the extinction events hit really hard because that is like something that I think about all the time, uh, pretty much every day. And yeah, just thinking about like, oh yeah, like this year, this thing actually happened. Like this species actually went extinct. Right. Um, but also the, um, I guess the, 
the possibility of actually doing some of these things that would make a better world, engaging in these kind of like utopian processes um, was such an incredible, like liberating feeling, even if it was just imaginary, because, you know, we're constantly surrounded by this like inability to act um, every day in our lives and just being like, oh yeah, no, like I can actually do things in the world that would make it a better place, would help these other species survive, would, you know, improve the standard of living around the world, would help liberate women, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and just, you know, even being able to exist in that imaginary space of possibility felt super liberating uh, and put me in this like, you know, really different um, frame of mind. And then that that same day was the day that the Guardian released their report on like the uh, these carbon bombs that are happening uh, where um, uh, oil and gas companies are making these uh, sort of covert investments in um, in massive oil and gas exploration uh, at the same time that they are running greenwashing campaigns. And uh, the Guardian was able to sort of figure out that they were doing this through some investigative journalism. Uh, and just that that contrast of like, you know, here's the hypothetical world where we are doing these, you know, great socialist things to really address these historical injustices and and, and, and work with our environment. And then here's the real world. And it was just an enormous emotional roller coaster of like feeling really high, wanting to cry, you know, it, 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 much more emotional than I thought would ever be possible from a game like this. Yeah. Wow. I'm really, I'm really um, pleased uh-huh. to hear that you know, you had a, this impact. Um, I guess we, in some ways it is easier for us to make these things feel impactful just because of how close it is to reality. Um, and I think ultimately I, I would like to think the game is like a hopeful, um, project in that, yeah, I think, uh, our entire lives kind of spent within this very narrow way of understanding the world through capitalist realism. Um, I'd like to think that the game and the book as well, definitely, um, are small cracks in being able to see other possible ways of structuring the world um, possible and I would say yeah necessary in order to avert a complete ecological collapse you know uh, yeah and uh, I guess uh, um, uh, June uh, I don't want to put you on the spot but you had a different play experience for me so how was it emotionally for you <laughs> it was um, yeah so like I, I really couldn't get it under control for a good couple of rounds Um and I was really floundering, but um, so there was there was a mild amount of uh, frustration there, but a, a real drive to try get try again and keep getting it. Um, in those kind of like early quite dark runs, there was there was some some things that hit me really hard that I found a bit surprising. Like the one that really hit me was the um, the event where the forests are all infested with like ash borers or whatever, and all the, all the trees are just being eaten by these crazy bugs or whatever. That one really kind of got me. I was like, oh, oh that's a bad situation. Um, but then in the couple of runs where I managed to actually turn it around and at least survive until the end, there was just some really nice dialogue, like pretty late in the game where um, one of the characters pops in 
and says something along the lines of, hey, yeah, I mean, the last couple of decades have been pretty grim, but like, I don't know, maybe this is all actually kind of working out. We, we have actually built a pretty sweet society, you know? And yeah, as, as Kyle said, it was really nice to just inhabit that space for a while, which is very different from my usual day-to-day -day kind of like um, uh, climate doom sort of mindset, where it, it seems nothing is possible. It was really lovely to be able to inhabit that world where, yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult. It's a really hard thing to turn around, but like that, it was actually possible to do it. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that, that sense of hope that maybe, maybe it might actually all pay off, you know, it was pretty, pretty good. It was, uh, got me in the feels, you know? Yeah, that's fantastic. I'm, mm. I'm really glad to hear that. Yeah, agreed. Um, so... Uh, I guess, is, are there any other uh, things you would like to add about uh, your experience developing the game or um, recommendations you'd like to make to people? Um, yeah. I don't know. I think, I mean, something that's come up recently is we're still kind of tweaking the game and adjusting the balancing and so on too. Um, I think some people were struggling with the early rounds because of some balancing issues, funnily enough. Um and there's some numbers that people have disputed, so we're kind of rechecking them. Um, so oh, right. it's still kind of being actively worked on, yeah. Um, and I, I guess I would say if yeah, if you had a hard time with it before, uh, maybe tr give it another try, and uh, hopefully we've adjusted some of these things to um, to uh, make it a little less punishing. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which. Um one thing I notice is that the uh, the geothermal power has like a really uh, limited um, uh, scope that you can use, right? Um, it's it's like well, you can only use it in sort of geothermally active areas, uh, so it's 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 not going to be a huge part of your energy mix. Um, but uh, I guess here in Canada, there's there's some new technology being developed in other countries as well to create like geothermal boreholes in areas where it wasn't previously possible. So uh, did you include that technology in the game or did you consider including it or was it just too speculative? I think I saw, yeah, I don't know. I saw some article, maybe it was the guardian. I can't remember mentioning something along those lines, but it was uh, pretty late into the game's development. I mean, that's the other thing that's been interesting is that a lot of these things are changing pretty rapidly and new techniques or new discoveries happen. And so I wouldn't be surprised if in a year or two, a lot of what we have is out of date. Yeah. Okay. That's so interesting. Cause I wanted to ask you about, um, this issue of continuous versus discontinuous planning, because, you know, uh, June and myself are both big fans of, uh, Stafford beer and one of, uh, beers, um, you know, strong arguments is that discontinuous planning, sort of five-year planning, is kind of a non-starter. Um, it's it's the world the world just changes too much to say, okay, five years from now, this is where we'll be, and not adjust it along the way. Um, and I, I was kind of wondering, like, I mean, obviously, it's it's really interested in, interesting to hear that even the game design uh, doesn't work on a discontinuous basis and you actually need to update to reflect the science or the state of the world. Uh, but how did you deal with this problem of, you know, continuity um, in designing the game? 
Do you mean like, uh, like, uh, so did you consider not using a five-year cycle? Like, I know there are sort of events that pop up in between the five-year uh, periods, which kind of reflect a bit of continuity. Um, yeah, like, uh, uh, how did how did this go? I'm trying to remember. Did we ever really talk through, like, make a conscious decision around the five-year plan structure? I feel like it was just kind of something yeah. that was part of the book, and we just ran with it. I think in some of our prototypes, if we had fleshed them out for a longer time into more more uh, complete kind of mini games, we probably would have found that maybe the five-year planning didn't work if we wanted to respond to events more frequently and have like a more active regional role. Um, but in the game as it stands, yeah, we definitely used it um, as a core structuring uh, mechanic to build the game around this five-year interval. Um, so you can, yeah, obviously in the current game, you can mess around with your cards, set your production mix, um, set your research and then click play. And then you see five years go past and you can see things, the results of your plan. So it kind of gave us a nice period to work over where, um, it's also, so it doesn't take, you know, like, uh, three hours to get to 2080. Um, and so you can have these nice chunks, but I suppose, yeah being able to respond to things while you see the globe turning. We do have that actually built into the game um, where you can actually make decisions as events happen, as you, as you watch the globe turn. But um, we ended up de-emphasizing that quite a lot in the final game. Right. So I guess, you know, it would be possible to maybe experiment with a kind of possible real-time model uh, where, you know, time moves faster than real time because obviously you couldn't get to the end of the game if, if it wasn't real time. Uh, but you could, you know, pa- pause to make decisions um, to sort of reflect that that more uh, short-term planning process. Um, that that might be a possibility. Uh, but um, the, the thing that that would remind me of is uh, I was just playing the other day uh, Cultist Simulator. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's, a, um, it's a card-based uh, management game that is in real time and you can't pause the game. Uh, so when the system is like spiraling out of control, you're, you're in this very like whack-a-mole uh, high stress uh, mode. Uh, and I think that might not really reflect the way planning happens, but uh, it's certainly an interesting contrast to the way that that half-Earth socialism works uh, in terms of uh, uh, both being card-based planning games but having different time models. Yeah, it's it's on mobile now, so I would I would absolutely recommend checking it out there or on PC because it is a very interesting uh, a design. Yeah, I mean, I can kind of imagine um, a version of half-Earth socialism that runs more in real time and... Uh, I guess it would have different affordances to what um, to what you uh, uh, decisions you're making uh, moment to moment, just because of the the difference in um, in pace. I think for us, like the the periodic, even if I guess according to Stafford Beer, and I guess who am I to say differently that periodic planning is is not the best way of doing things. I think from a gameplay point of view, it really does allow us to let players come to terms with the, the, the multitude of options um, that they have in front of them. 
and then, yeah, try and um, make sense of that before they start run it, before they start, um, yeah, putting it into play. And I guess, yeah, quite late on, actually, we, we changed some of the game's code so it was very easy to reverse decisions you make in the planning phase um, so that people didn't feel kind of afraid to put points into things and then realize, oh, there's actually something else they want to try. Um, and I guess, like, some of the games that me and Francis like are these very tight kind of um, readable kind of perfect information games like Into the Breach, which is totally a different game to what we ended up making. Um, but we enjoyed that in that game, you can kind of see a lot of the parts at play and kind of take your time to decide on how you want to act. And I think if we introduce kind of like a panic element of the time of the time running down, it might create like a totally different experience, which I would also be interested in seeing what that would look like, you know? Yeah, that's uh, very, very interesting. And I mean, I, I certainly think that there is an argument to be made for kind of this discontinuous planning at this very highest level of abstraction. Uh, uh, you know, maybe you'd want something more continuous if you were looking at the regional level or the, the local level, but I think it makes sense the way it's set up here. But uh, yeah, just one of those, I guess it's just one of those fun uh, legacies we get as socialists from a uh, good old Goss plan. Um. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, yeah, I, I guess, um, June, do you have any final questions? Uh, no, it's, um, it's a, it's a really great game. It's, um, I think it's a wonderful piece of, uh, I guess it's a pedagogical ar- artifact that I, I really encourage everyone to go check out. Um, and yeah, uh, th- thanks for coming on and yeah, thanks for making the game. Thank yeah, you. Thank thanks you for much. having us. Um, yeah, uh, so happy to have them on. I mean, it's, you know, everything they've done with this game, I think is, you know, very near and dear to my heart in terms of my, my, my current research interests, like where I'm working, my, you know, everything we've done on GIU. Um, yeah all really important stuff to me. Um, so to see someone actually go out and design a game, like get to a, like, you know, 1.0 release, even if it is under continuous development and have at least a fairly sizable number of players, um, pick it up and give it a try is, uh, awesome because it's so, so rare for a like educational game of this sort uh, to find a larger audience. Um, and I think it's a huge success that they've, they managed to do that to, uh, maybe not the degree of a, you know, huge commercial game, but what would be considered, I think, an outstanding success for a, a educational or, uh, eco game, uh, uh, without a commercial publisher. Yeah. It's, um, it's wild. It's, 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 it's weird how like in the pocket it is for us. It's like, I don't know. It, it's one of those things. Like, oh, was was this made for us? You know, it's um, it's really really up our alley. Um, and like, I remember during the the brain of the firm reading group thing that the concept of like using games for this kind of education stuff kept coming up. 
Yeah, and it was just like, well, but we we don't exactly have the expertise. We don't exactly have the time. We don't exactly have the institutional basis. And to see, I mean, again, it feels like uh, when we read uh, People's Republic of Walmart, it's like, you know, this is the book I would have written for my dissertation uh, if I had been in a situation to finish my dissertation, right? And th- this this game... I don't think I would have necessarily developed it or developed it exactly the same way, but there's so many points that it hits on from like our sort of agenda from the show that it's, it's uh, very, very gratifying, very exciting to play. I don't, I don't feel like jealousy about these things at all in terms of other people achieving them. I'm just so happy they exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause I mean, like, it's not like we were ever going to get around to that, um, you know, on our own time. Um, yeah, and I, I do, I just, I love them, I love this thing from a pedagogical standpoint, right, that like, because um, like you can really grab people's attention with this kind of thing, and like, you can get kind of people, you know, they'll, they'll probably do the, the first round and completely crash and burn in the first five years, and then be like, ah, oh, fucking damn it, like, try again, and then you come back and it's like, it's like Cookie Clicker or fucking one of those Farmville games or whatever, it's just like, it's it's pretty it's got that kind of one more go sort of um sort of feeling um so like but as a way of teaching people about these concepts like it's it it it's tactile and becomes intuitive um in a way that like you can't really get across to people in text as easily that's right and yeah like i um i know i said that I sort of did that one run and I was like, okay, that's my run. It wasn't perfect. You know, I didn't achieve everything I wanted to achieve. There were like big disasters that happened, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm just going to leave it because going through blind and sort of pretending role-playing as the planner who doesn't know how everything's going to turn out was such like one of the parts of the game that I loved the most. Uh, But when I was playing, I was totally in that just one more turn mode. Like I was, I was a hundred percent like hyper focused, sucked in, uh, and just like, yeah, sat there for an afternoon, uh, mainlining the game, uh, and, and enjoying every minute of it. Fantastic. I th- see. Like, I think I finished it. Um, I think I managed to get to the end maybe twice, but in both cases, I think I still had, maybe it was, maybe the temperature was still too high. Or emissions, emissions might have still been a smidge over what it needed to be, but um, but the like biosphere die-off and contentedness and something else were were in within bounds. That they seemed it was doing pretty well on those grounds, but um, so it's it's like you miss the target, but like it's like within a you know the next planning cycle you might have hit the target right like it's like you'd be you're on your way to 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 getting things under control uh in the near future so yeah i mean that still seems like a success to me yeah and i also had a couple of runs where i got basically right up to the last planning cycle and it seemed like it was going fine and then suddenly it was like negative five million points or something like everything went wrong at once I was like, no, what the fuck? And then you get the little bit where everyone's like, they, they storm the fucking palace and, uh, and execute you or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, did you uh, use the, um, the geoengineering at all? Like the atmospheric uh, uh, modification? 
I think a couple of times I did, but not. I, th I think I only used the initial like cloud brightening, which seems that seems to knock a like a half a degree Celsius off, and I it didn't seem like it had huge downsides. But I, I never pursued anything beyond that. Um, yeah, that that seemed very dangerous. The ones beyond that. Well, like if you, I think if you do uh, if you do solar radiation management, it like reduces the effectiveness of solar panels and that kind of shit as well. So I kind of intuited like after a while, I started to work out that like you could get a lot of success by pursuing the kind of eco-feminist um, angle. Do do kind of like immediate projects for like biosphere restoration. Um, like indigenous autonomy and a couple of other things along those lines. Um, try to switch to electricity as much as possible. I think the thing I continuously trip over is fuels, which seem to be really hard to get right. And I think I haven't quite cracked the agriculture bit yet. Yeah, I think fuels were one of the most finicky things for me, where I was very much like... Uh, I think one thing I did, I'm not sure if this is actually useful or not, but I made sure that any... Um, changes I made to the fuel mix would be uh, achievable within one planning period. So I would never, I would never um, like just sort of going off that Berean idea of uh, like making planning as continuous as possible. Uh, I never I initiated a change to the energy plan that would take more than one period. So I could, I could just keep my uh, investments in line with my research outcomes as much as possible um, and and really try to, uh, you know, just find the tweaks that would get like sort of get me limping along the way until uh, I could get better solar panels and then just like, boom, go all in on all in on solar uh, as much solar investment as you can do within one planning period. Uh, and then the next one go all in again. Um, yeah. That might be the difference. Cause I, I think I was less sensitive to, especially with the production changes, less sensitive to how long they would take. So maybe, maybe that's the trick. And I, I found pretty often, um, I would end up with, for some reason, there's just like zero output from a whole bunch of things. So maybe that's why, maybe I was just juking it too hard, you know? Yeah, that, that's so, yeah. I feel like the thing I, you want to do is like go long on research and policy and go short on uh, energy mix. Um, like that's what you want to micromanage. And then to some degree, the agriculture is like in the middle, I guess, right? Like it's, you, uh, you don't have a ton of options there all the time. So you kind of, you know, bump it along. Well, I found, I found with the animal husbandry thing, there was almost no point in switching to organic. You just had to reduce demand as the way to get it down. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, like, oh yeah, that was, that was really interesting to me where it's like, you know, people sort of in everyday conversations will be like, oh yeah, but like I buy like organic beef, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, yeah, but like that is better for the cattle. That is better for uh, the, maybe the biodiversity of the farm where the cattle are being raised but the energy and water consumption is out of control. Uh, it's like even worse than factory farming. So um, this game was like really good at uh, spelling that out in tangible terms to me. 
Um, and because uh, you look at the carrots, right, and they've got the they've got the little the little barometers or whatever at the bottom for like energy intensity, water intensity, land intensity, and like uh, biosphere pressure. And like those two carrots are identical in those regard. They're all maximum red on both sides. Um, yeah, it's like we just can't do this, folks. Like, yeah, like meat is got to be off the menu. Like, did you get any mileage out of the cellular meat process? Yeah, I definitely, I definitely did invest in that, and I did uh, move towards that as much as sort of was like viable with the amount of energy that I had available at any given time. Because uh, it is obviously like a synthetic process, so it is more like energy intensive. Uh, but yeah, I, I definitely moved towards that, um, it, you know, sort of in line with my, uh, uh, I don't know, I guess, moderate extreme vegetarianism agenda. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. It is, it's a real recurring theme. It's a theme throughout the game. And again, this, this is, it's a theme in the game that actually reflects the reality of the situation. And that's that's why it's so good at teaching you this, that like you, you do start to internalize. It's like all of these good changes are all like super fucking heavy on energy. And so you need like the elect electrification and like getting the energy, getting energy output way up and decarbonizing that energy production is one of those like critical uh, pivot points for the for your playthrough. A hundred percent. Yeah. Like it's, you know, fossil fuels, especially oil and gas, um, the energy density uh, you get out of them is so high, which makes them so portable. And um, the effort required to extract them has historically been ludicrously low and is now sort of, you know, moderate, probably not that competitive with uh, renewable energy if you took out the fossil fuel subsidies, right? Uh, but the, the energy density being so high is like, you know, it's, it's just something you can't really magic away through science. Like, it's just... You know, batteries just aren't as good at it. Hydrogen just is not as good as hydrocarbons at, at being energy dense. It's just physics and chemistry. You can't get around that. Um, so, yeah, yeah. And that, like I, I really struggled with the fuel mix stuff because like the uh, even if you go all in on the green hydrogen and stuff, it just you still end up with huge shortages and that's really hard to balance. So I think I've. I think my next attempt, I'll just kind of leave petroleum in the mix for a, good, a bit longer and see if I can get around it somehow. I left it. I left it until the end. I think the only thing I did was like uh, um, get off coal as fast as possible, uh, and then um, shift energy from uh, oil to natural gas uh, as much as I could to you know, sort of fuel the onboarding for hydrogen production and then uh, wind uh, wind and solar uh, down the line? Yeah, yeah. Um, coal. coal is the first thing to go uh, for whenever I start when I start a new run. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's got to go. It's It's got to go. Like, I didn't get rid of any nuclear, but I didn't build any either because I was like, well, 
I don't know if the game models it, but at this point in time in 2022, we're already past the, um, the viable window in which we could invest in nuclear energy in order to get uh, meaningful uh, outcomes out of it. So like, you know, even if you put the, the pollution dimension aside, um, it simply isn't an option anymore. Uh, and so, um, yeah, I, di I didn't invest in that at all. Tried to invest as much as I could in geothermal, but uh, the, the game is quite restrictive with how much you can get out of that. I don't know. We'll see. Maybe, maybe they'll change it in light of the new science. Uh, that would definitely make the game easier. <laughs> it's like, you know, there's a lot of energy in the Earth's core that we could use too. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's um, it's something I keep coming back to, but it's, it's something I really admire the game for that it can, as when you come to it first time, you can kind of try out your usual hobby horses of like, oh yeah, let's just jam up nuclear or whatever and flip over to the agriculture tab, you know, dial down industrial agriculture to zero, dial organic up to a hundred. You know, it seems like an easy win, right? Like, see, these, why is this shit so hard? You know, why is everyone making such a big deal out of this stuff? And then, of course, those are fucking disasters, right? Like, you, uh, everyone dies in the first 10 years, basically. Um, and then you have to kind of come around to these realizations that, like, ah, shit, this, this stuff is a bit more difficult. And the, the trade-offs are a bit weirder than you might initially think when you're going into it. Yeah, it's like there's this sort of double movement of, like, the solutions, you know, as you were saying, being kind of like more nuts and bolts than you might suggest or might expect in many ways. Uh, so in a, in a sense, being much easier, uh, but also um, there being that like high transition overhead and then all of this requiring that you don't have... Um, the capitalist Thanatos uh, lobby on board, uh, sabotaging everything you try to do. Well, that's that's the thing, right? Is that like the um, when you look at the, the where you end up in a good playthrough is often a lot of degrowth kind of stuff, right? Like you have the eco-feminist curriculum, you have like Renfair Utopia, and the, um, like dialing down meat consumption. And it's it, in some ways those are very easy answers. Actually, it's like how do you solve meat production? Uh, you don't just just don't fucking do it. Um, how do you yeah just don't eat that much meat or don't eat any meat you know how do you solve uh pressure on the biosphere i uh, just do less shit just fucking hang around the house instead you know don't go anywhere or fucking you know make things it's, it's easy answers but in our kind of capitalist realist um mindset or whatever or where we are now and trying to push through that political barrier those are the hard answers right like those that that suggestion of like how about we just do a whole lot less fucking stuff and that, that'll take care of all kinds of pressure on the biosphere and energy demands and stuff. Um, you know, how about instead of driving into town to go to work, I just hang out, hang out with my kids all day. That's actually the easy answer, but it's the hard answer in this world. Yeah, I mean, if you're doing like a uh, sort of a Greyburian bullshit job, uh, the, the, uh, the, the least climate impact you might be able to achieve is just by not working maybe <laughs> just stop doing it like i'm fairly convinced that we could we could actually just cut economic activity to a fifth and lose basically nothing because just there's just such yeah as long as we had a a, a way to manage the transition yeah and, and i mean and we should say that like 
yes, there is a degrowth agenda here, but the other thing you see as you play through the game is just like all of these regions in the global south just like ticking up to high living standards. You know, just like like literally billions and billions of humans achieving liberation from poverty uh, at the same time that you're engaging in degrowth. And that is, uh, you know, uh, it's really gratifying, but it's also really nice to see when the discourse around quote unquote development um, is so heavily biased towards like, well, the only success story has been communist China, uh, which has just been like extremely heavy state planning combined with uh, imitating the like you know, quote unquote, best practices from capitalism to achieve a high growth. Um, uh, so, you know, uh, you know, kind of a, a, from a sustainability point standpoint, like basically a dead end. Um, yeah. So uh, to, to see those things not being an either or, uh, but a both and uh, is like, and, you, you know, you don't even have to kill off uh, most of the animal species on Earth to do it. It's it's incredible. <laughs> yeah, you can. It's great. It's uh, when when you get a good run and things start to go relatively well, it really does feel good. You know, um, you kind of you can actually pass through the kind of yeah, like you kind of get over the hill and there's a couple of grim years, but yeah, once once you're getting into the twenty seventies, if you're going if if things are going well, it starts to feel pretty good. You know. Yeah. Yeah, like all the rewilding successes that you see, like, oh, you know, like these huge swaths of the earth are like literally using that sort of half half earth concept um, are, are, are just, you know, they're just places for animals to do their thing. And that is, yeah, I mean, it's just a nice world to imagine uh, where, you know, not like every narrative we have about the natural world is just about like precarity, disaster, guilt. Um, Bring back the mastodon. You know, you get to do that de-extinction program. Yeah, you, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's something uh, that's in the uh, end of uh, Ministry for the Future. So I guess it's it's a popular popular notion to bring bring back the megafauna. You know. It's like sort of like atoning for humanity's original sins of like, you know, where we uh, we were doing like unsustainable development practices when all we had were like spears and, and furs. <laughs> um, <laughs> just yeah. like, oh, these big animals, they sure have a lot of calories and useful things. I guess we should just uh, hunt them. Yeah. And it, it takes a couple of million years for a reason to transcend the kind of magpie brain um, of humanity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, totally. I, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if magpies are actually smarter. So. <laughs> They're probably less destructive, yeah. yeah for, from, from a sustainability <laughs> standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> They're less inclined to fucking blow themselves up. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so, I mean, I guess this is, a, uh, this is an excellent illustration of the trials that lay ahead of us. Uh, as I said, you know, I think um, it was really hard to read that uh, that carbon bomb article, which I, I strongly recommend people go read because, you know, I, I'm not the biggest fan of The Guardian, given the way that they tend to affect politics, <laughs> uh, sort of uh, uh, act as the mouthpiece for the, the, the worst 
uh, factions of the Labour Party um, and and police police left wing politics. Uh, but uh, honestly, that is some uh, really outstanding investigative reporting that they did there. Um, I I'd highly recommend checking it out. And uh, you know, one of the things that really stood out for me was that despite having such a small population, um, I think Canada is number three in terms of carbon bomb investment, like investing, investing like in ways that are clearly beyond uh, any kind of Paris commitments uh, and trying to cover it up. Um, And, you know, a lot of that has to do with uh, economic exploitation of the Arctic, uh, which, you know, every, every uh, capitalist in Canada has a massive hard on for, um, and it really puts in stark terms, like, you know, okay, Canada has a small population, so, like, each individual, you know, like, doesn't add up to that much. But when you take into account the impact that Canadian capitalism has, well, it's enormous, and it's like, this shit's got to change or we're all dead. It's that simple. And, uh, you know, this country is frankly uh i mean an existential threat to humanity on the same order or perhaps more so than somewhere like north korea (laughs) you know it's it's a a very i mean the u.s same way but the thing that like when it looks at the u.s it's like oh the u.s is the worst it's like okay well no one's surprised by that but canada being as small as it is uh, is a bit of a surprise. And so that's where that kind of in reporting really can help to light a fi- fire under the asses of uh, Canadians like myself. And, uh, uh, you know, you combine that with sort of the images of, of utopia, the images of possibility, that uh, the images of hope that you get from a game like this. And it, it gives you even more motivation because it's like, well, you know, you, you, you only really feel the pain of despair when you have hope, right? And that's rough, but it does, it does provide maybe a motivation in the way that the sort of like learned helplessness of reading the news every day doesn't. Mm. Yeah, certainly, right. Um, and, you know, the, the game kicks off in the aftermath of uh, the global socialist revolution and yeah, again, yeah, playing it, you, you then turn around and, re- and it, it drills home to you that the ruling class are insane and they must be vanquished as a prerequisite for for any of this stuff to go well. <laughs> yeah. For, like, just literally anything to survive. Yeah, well, that's our agenda. <laughs> yeah, let's, uh, let's get it done. Um, these, uh, these fuckers have to be brought low and soon. Um, yeah, go play the game, folks. It's really good. Um, uh, thanks listeners uh, it's been wonderful as always um, we hope you enjoyed the interview uh, while you wait for the next one you can find us on Twitter at GIUnitPod uh, we're on Facebook we're on all the podcast apps so uh, subscribe and um, I guess yeah also if you really like the show uh, share it around with your friends because we could do with some more listeners and spreading the good word um, spreading the good word that the ruling class must be vanquished pretty fucking soon by the end of the year ideally um, and then we can get on with um, rebuilding the world. Um, yeah, the sooner the better, really. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, ideally, by the well, if we do it by the end of the year, we get to um, 
uh, I don't know, maybe unlock a, st- a Steam achievement for doing that for the game. Um, Ooh, yeah. achievos. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why the Soviet Union used so many medals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you get the Order of Lenin. <laughs> um, it pops up as a Steam achievement um, if you if you do the revolution. Um, anyway, where where was I before that happened? Um, uh, getting getting uh, you know spreading word of mouth, getting getting new people to listen because uh, yeah, we uh, you know I think. Uh, it's rough out there being a socialist right now, and I understand that we're now we're not we're not experiencing explosive growth at a time like this because, I mean, to be honest, we're on the political back foot, um, uh, pretty much everywhere. Even in Chile, you know, the the nationalization plan for the mining industry that they were trying to do uh, under their sort of I guess you could call it like revolutionary government uh more or less uh uh was defeated um and that was one of the the bright spots for us so uh i understand why people are not uh super eager to hop on board with a socialist podcast right now but uh for those who may be interested uh please uh share and um it's a it's appreciated that uh we get uh, more people to listen yeah absolutely um and hopefully hopefully there's an upswing coming like if you ever think like so this show has never been a bernie corbin sort of thing but it, it came up in during those kind of years and just like the the different energy around that time you know like the, the energy now is so fucking different even though like we were never invested in those kind of projects but like um the i don't know the, the, the way the wind is blowing is very different now um and all we can do is write it out and and spread the good word, get people get people interested, get them thinking. I mean, it's what this game does, right? Gets you fucking thinking about these kinds of things. Um, and if the day ever dawns, um, we'll uh, we'll be in a slightly better position. That's right. I mean, uh, yeah, literally, um, it's about improving the general intellect. So that is a positive. Um, uh, even if we do need a system five uh, to actually do these things that are in the game, um, yeah, yes, yes, that's right. <laughs> um, to help out with the potential emergence of Gosplant, much like one would help with the emergence of Skynet, um, you can go to Patreon.com/slash/GeneralIntellectUnit and give us a couple of bucks a month to um, help keep help keep the uh, ship afloat, um, and you'll get access to our community Discord, uh, which is a really, really nice place to hang out with some good folks. You should also check out Emancipation.network on the internet because uh, that's the podcast network that we're a part of. Um, check out our sister shows such as From Alpha to Omega, Jumpsuit Utopia. Mortal Science and Swampside Chats. They're all fantastic um, and well worth a listen. And uh, we have, after a, I believe, 10-month hiatus, uh, we have restarted the Understanding Class reading group um, with uh, from Alpha to Omega. Uh, so I think uh, episodes are still coming out from our previous, reading, uh, previous sessions, but... Uh, can at least say that that is ongoing and uh, very spicy. Um, if you want to hear me uh, 
blow my top uh, about uh, uh, neoclassical economics, um, go listen to that because, uh, you know, everybody was a bit surprised given the way I, I usually speak, but uh, I guess that's the thing that makes me really upset uh, is when uh, <laughs> economics ig- ignores the existence of time and space. Uh, we, we've had, yeah, there's been some heated moments on this show whenever that kind of thing comes up and it, it, it gets us both riled right the fuck up. <laughs> Yeah. It's one thing to have a five-year plan. It's it's another thing to have a no-year plan. To have just not a concept of time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's brutal. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic show, and I'm looking forward to hearing more of that. Anything else before we wrap up? No, I think that's everything. Uh, so, yeah, go enjoy the game. Uh, maybe read the book. Uh, we might cover it on the show uh, in the, the me- sort of medium-term future. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, may the socialist dawn come tomorrow. Yeah, hopefully. Fingers crossed. Uh, while we wait for that, uh, thanks for listening. We'll catch you again next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.